Hey, here's my requisite shout-out to Athletic Brewing, my favorite non-alcoholic beer out there. Not a paid plug, but I am a brand ambassador, and I want to celebrate this amazing product. So if you head to athleticbrewing.com, use the promo code BRENDANO20 at checkout, get a nice little discount on your first order. Give it a shot. My favorite is these days is Athletic Light and Free Wave. So I don't know. Give it a shot. Can't hurt. I, I mean, I just see it as the work. Like, how can you push yourself forward? You know, don't try to rest on what you've done. And you, I don't want to be a, a one book guy or a two book guy or a three essay guy. Like, I want to do this for for a very long time at a high level if it's possible. OACNF is a CNF pod, the creative nonfiction podcast, a show where I speak to badass people about telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Mara. Good for me. This pod has been a couple years in the making. We've got Pulitzer Prize winner Mitchell S. Jackson on the show today for episode 364. He won the big prize for his feature on the murder of Ahmaud Arbery, 12 Minutes in a Life for Runner's World magazine. His first novel, The Residue Years, won a Whiting Award and the Ernest J. Gaines Prize for Literary Excellence and was a finalist for the Center for Fiction, Flaherty Dunnan, First Novel Prize, and many others. He's a regular contributor to Esquire Magazine, the New York Times Magazine, and his, his work of nonfiction, Survival Math, Notes on an All-American Family, was named the best book of the year in 2019 by 15 different publications, including NPR, the Paris Review, and BuzzFeed. He's also a professor at Arizona State University. Something that has always struck me about Mitchell's work is his uncompromising voice, a cadence, an incredible delivery, where you know you're in the hands of a true, like, auteur. In fact, he's the kind of writer where I'd read whatever he's writing just for him. Like, there are some voices out there where you would pay to hear them read the phone book. And um, similarly, I would... I would pay for Mitchell to write the phone book. He's at Mitch S. Jackson on Twitter and Instagram, and you can learn more about him and his work at MitchellSJackson.com. He's a special dude. Awesome that we got to speak to him. We? We're, we're dropping the royal we now on the show? Make sure you're headed over to BrendanOmero.com hey, hey, for show notes and to sign up for the Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter. It's now on Substack. Just click the lightning bolt on my website or visit rageagainstthealgorithm.substack.com. Still first of the month, no spam, still can't beat it. And if you dig the show, consider sharing it with your networks so we can grow the pie and get this CNF and thing into the brains of other CNFers who need the juice. You can also leave a kind review on Apple Podcasts so the wayward CNFer might just say, well, shit, I'll give that a shot. I mean, he's got Mitchell S. Jackson on the show. That That's something. That says something. Also, show is free, but it sure as hell ain't cheap. So maybe consider heading to patreon.com slash cnfpod and consider dropping a few bucks in the hat if you glean some value from what we churn and burn here at CNF Pod HQ. All right, you're you're gonna love this one as we delve into you know his his writing for you know Esquire's profile did on Chris Rock, uh, developing a voice, forging a voice, and leaving a legacy. So here we go. Let's get after it. Whew. 
know, I, I gotta say, uh, with um, where 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 do you keep your your Pulitzer Prize, man? <laughs> well, now it's I just got a new bookshelf, so it's sitting right here on the bookshelf. Uh, the 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 physical, I don't know. It looks like a little diamond um, cube thing, and then they the the plaque is hanging on a wall in, in the hallway. That's amazing. Yeah, congrats on that. It's uh, it's incredible. And uh, w- when you look at it, you know what is the the predominant feeling that you feel when you when you see it in passing, or even if you allow yourself a moment of uh, introspection when you're looking at it. Yeah, I mean, I don't really look at it anymore. <laughs> but but uh, what in the in the hallway, it's up with the some other awards on the wall and my degrees, and so it feels like it's telling a story about my career in a way that it, that is not just sitting here on the shelf, but I'm obviously proud of it. I mean, I think, you know, it's one of those things that marks you for the rest of your life that, and I don't, there are, there are a few things that do that. So I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for that. Yeah. That's a great way of, of putting it. It's almost like a, it's a, but it's also, it's a, like an ongoing thing too. Like I'm sure like you, you know, even at, you know, you're someone in your forties, so you're not, you're not satisfied, but you're, you're leaving a trail and a body of work behind you. That's like very, I imagine that's very validating as you push yourself forward into how, into your, into your newer, uh, and future ambitions. Yeah, definitely. That's exactly how I see it. I mean, there's a, there's a, a measure of satisfaction, but you know, I mean, I've written so many things since, um, 12 minutes in a life, nonfiction pieces at that. So, so it, it is, I, I mean, I just see it as the work, like how can you push yourself forward? You know, don't try to rest on what you've done. And you, I don't want to be a, a one book guy or a two book guy or a three essay guy. Like I want to do this for, for a very long time at a high level if it's possible. Yeah, when I was listening to uh, your interview with Evan Ratliff on Longform, and and even recently reading your profile on Chris Rock, after like listen listening to that interview and then reading that profile, and then even just hearing what you just said now, I really got a a sense that as you were profiling Chris Rock, I I, I get the sense that in terms of putting out putting out the work and not being satisfied and sitting on your laurels. That you probably saw a lot of yourself in Chris Rock. Am I right in reading into that? I, I would like to say I see a lot of. Um, I don't know about a lot of it, but I, I respect his attention to craft. Yeah, and and something he said. There were two things he said. I remember one of them in the interview. He said, um, "This." He's like comedian performers. He said, you do this thing and it naturally puts you on a stage, which puts you above everyone else. But he said, uh, the better the comedian, the lower the stage gets. And um, I thought that was a really keen way to think about yourself and fame and critical acclaim and just the craft of what you do, like bringing yourself down to a human level. Right. Like seeing yourself inside of humanity, not above it or beyond it. And then the fact that he kept a reading list and, you know, he was, he had a lot of expertise in different areas. Just let me know that this guy is just, he's really intellectually curious and he does his, does the work. So I I appreciated that because that's, I feel like that's how you keep going. 
but I'll say though, I felt the most uh, connected to Kendrick um, and doing, and I don't know if you looked at that, but, but for me, because Kendrick and I came out of the same kind of world and had this like sense of artistic integrity and making something of the world that we came from, like I really, really felt a Kendrick spirit to him and his partner, Dave. Yeah. The, uh, about the the rock quote about uh, the stage like i had i had pl- plucked that out and you know the better p- the performance the lower the stage gets yeah and I, I i love that in essence because the principle behind that it doesn't matter if you're a comedian on stage a musical performer on stage or a writer writing books the best things resonate when yeah the stage gets lower and you're more uh, among your audience and relating to them in in universal and very concrete ways so like is that it strikes me as something that uh, as like kind of a North star for you, I imagine as you're processing your essays and your books. Absolutely. I mean, the reason why that quote um, resonated with me so much is because when I was studying with Gordon Lish, one of his edicts was never put yourself above the other on the page. Uh, and he said, you know, if you can find fault in another person on the page and you have to also be able to find fault in yourself or if it was fiction, which we were talking about then in the protagonist. And and so I really live by that. Like even if you if you read 12 Minutes in a the Life, there's a moment which I mean, I was really trying to defend Ahmad and his mistakes that he had made or quote mistakes because uh, they had they were talking about him being arrested and. And so that's there's a moment in the piece where I say, you know, Amai got arrested and had a gun and got probation and I got arrested and had a gun and drugs and went to prison and I'm here writing and Ahmad is dead. And so that was me. It's not lowering myself, but like seeing how our lives are on par with each other. Yeah, that's uh that takes a real delicate hand to to do that and to do that effectively where you're not inserting yourself into the story as a means to uh, even though you're trying to relate and say you're not above them. It's also doing it in a way that I think is more respectful of yeah. the source at hand. Like you, there's a purpose behind it, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, you can't do that with everyone. And I, and I, yeah. but, but I think the beauty of, being in this space. I mean, one thing about the Pulitzer is I don't have to write about anybody I don't want to now. Right. Yeah. Um, And so I'm choosing people to write about who I actually have a genuine interest in. Like I'm not just, Oh, you got a cover story on celebrity a and and I want to write it. It's like, no, do I really have a connection and can I push myself artistically and writing about this person? And do I respect what they've done and their work? And so if I don't, if I don't see that, then I don't want to do it. And so I felt a connection. I felt that connection to Ahmad when I was doing that. And I think you, you can't fake, I mean, I guess you can try to fake being genuine, but hopefully um, readers will ascertain that that's not the case. Now, I understand the the reporting of that piece was done, at, I think, entirely remote, just based, yeah. on, based on the pandemic. Uh, and, you know, you're uh, someone who is, trained in you know fiction and writing and not like a, you know a pure journalist per se so um how did you approach it you know just the delicate nature of it the sensitive nature of the story speaking to you know his close family members who desperately miss him and and the, the injustice of it all so how did you handle that you know in your reporting 
I mean, I think I had the benefit of having written survival math and talking about very similar delicate subjects with people who had similar experiences to Maude's family. So that, that was a benefit. Also, I, I really tried to, I mean, every, every reporter is, well, I imagine most reporters are trying to connect with the people that they're interviewing in some way. When I was talking to Maude's, you know, ex-girlfriend and his sister, it felt like I was talking to like my younger cousins. And I remember, I guess the best example of that is that I, the last person that I interviewed for that story was Buck, which is Ahmad's older brother. And he was very skeptical of me going into the interview. Like his first words were like, what do you want to do with my brother? Like you trying to make some money or something. Mm. And I, I had to not really defend it, but explain myself to him. And I remember we must have talked for maybe 30, 45 minutes. And then when I got off the phone, we were laughing so hard, like telling each other jokes. And, and, and when I got off my partner, she was like, who was that that you were interviewing? And I was like, oh, that was, that was Buck. That's Maude's older brother. She was like, I thought that was one of your homeboys. <laughs> so for me, that was like the greatest compliment. She had no idea who it was. And for us to have that kind of rapport, like I think that was how I was able to get, you know, that my, like the McChicken sandwich with cheese, you know? So for me, again, it's like choosing subjects where you have that connection. Um, But then I, but I also worry sometimes that maybe I'm not pushing myself out of this world enough, you know, like one attempt at that was doing the Scarlett Johansson story. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like like early on, they're like, well, we don't want to just keep pitching you the black, stories Mitch like do you want to do Scarlett Johansson I'm like well I like Marvel and it turned out that she was cool and she ended up reading survival math and but I, I just wouldn't have normally gravitated to that as a subject um, but I'm glad I did so I do like having a familiarity with the world of the people that I'm interviewing at least feeling somewhat that that's that that's somewhat the case but also, I do want to make sure that as an artist, I'm not limiting myself on who I can cover and what I'm interested in as well. I think that experience with uh, Ahmad's brother uh, really underscores the ability to get face to face with people. And I know you weren't physically face to face, but it's like in a, and I've spoken about this with some people on the show of late, uh, especially in a digital age where a lot of things are very detached and uh, impersonal and faceless, be it through DMs or email, even a phone call, cold call. It's like, it's very easy to reject, especially when you're trying to talk about delicate uh, subjects. It's very easy to just say, no, like, you know, I, I feel like you're like, kind of like uh, Ahmad's brother was saying, like, what do you want? Like, are you trying to get like money from telling a uh, capitalize off of Ahmad's story? And, but the fact that you were able to disarm me, disarm him by being face to face, and the fact that towards the end it was like you guys had known each other for years, like that's so integral to doing this kind of storytelling. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, I was interviewing black people too. I don't, I don't think that that's insignificant, and. Mm. Uh, I don't think it's insignificant that my daughter grew up in Atlanta and I, I, I probably mentioned that to them that I had spent a lot of time in Georgia. So there were, I think one thing in general that I, I, I find myself doing 
is always trying to find what it is that connects me to someone. I think I was just, I don't know where I, I was just somewhere and it's, oh, I was in Portland and then the, I was at a bar and, and the guy came over and brought us drinks and I was like, where are you from? He was like, oh, I'm from Brooklyn. And I was like, oh man, I used to live in Brooklyn. I was like, well, what part of, you know, so once you say Brooklyn, like it's so big, but when you actually live in Brooklyn, you can be like, well, were you in Fort Greene or were you in Flatbush or and I was yeah. like, man, I was on Atlantic. And he was like, oh, I was right down the street. And so then I named his subway stop. And so for me, that's just basically what I do in an interview as well. It's like, what is it, what is it that is connecting us? What part of my life do I feel that is attending to this other person's life? It's totally lowering the stage, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah, definitely. But But in this case, like there's no real stakes in it either. It's just something... I guess maybe I want to feel connected to people. And so I'm always trying to, to, to find that and, and to see what their response is. Yeah. And, and reading your, your work over the years, uh, what I'm so uh, taken by it is just a, like a real, like uncompromising voice uh, on the page. And sometimes I liken it to, you know, uh, in, in movies, like some, some, maybe some auteurs, they'll like, they'll kowtow to like the big studio to then maybe subsidize like the art project. And then their real voice comes through. Um, but I feel with you, like there, uh, I, that there isn't just an uncompromising nature to, to your voice and your writing. And I wonder if like you've, you've done that kind of math yourself well, you know, what? like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna write a certain way. So then maybe I can afford to do it my way later. Like, I'm just going to do it my way now. Yeah. I mean, that is absolutely it. And, and I really have to go back to um, Gordon Lish, who really, he was the first person to, um, I mean, his comment was, Mitchell, you got an ear. And so he was the first person that turned me towards trying to cultivate a voice. And I've studied a lot. I have a, I teach a lecture on voice. I've been teaching it for four or five years. It keeps growing and growing. And I learn new terms and or terms for things that I've been doing, but didn't know what it meant. And, um, but really it's, 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 it's like cultivating, uh, the skill of listening and mm. what sounds go together. And, and then also it's a political position to me because I'm, I'm also trying to mix what other people would classify as high and low diction or, you know, diction from the world of my first life and diction from the world of my second life. And so I think if you put both of those things together, that's really where I try to stay on the page. But also I remember very distinctly, I did my first New York Times book review. And that was actually my very first review ever. And uh, I sent it in and then the editor came back and he wanted to change something. I can't remember the edits, the exact edit, but I pushed back against the editor. And I was like, no, I said, if you change this, you've taken out my voice. And anybody could have wrote this review. And he was like, okay, Mitch, if you feel that strongly, I'll keep it in. And he kept it in. And then that review ended up being the cover of the Times. It's my, I've done several since. I've never made the cover again. But that very first one was on the cover. And I remember having that um, discussion with the editor and just like putting my foot down. Like, no, I'm not publishing something that doesn't sound like me. And Maybe it was winning that battle, but 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 certainly thereafter, I was like, I'm never going to let an editor push me off of my square in terms of voice. Now, that's not to say I won't listen to you 
with structure and we can move some stuff around, but like voice, nah, not doing it. And the good thing is once you do it a couple of times, like no one's coming to you. They all know what, you, what, what it's going to sound like to a certain degree. Right. So I think if you wanted somebody to write strictly in the house style, you just wouldn't, you wouldn't query me. Like, I'm not your guy. Go get another guy. And that's nothing, no, no disrespect. But if you come to me now, you got to know at least a little bit of what you're getting. And, you know, you brought up Gordon Lish a couple times and, uh, you know, it's, you wrote a wonderful uh, essay about rejection for tin houses. It <laughs> goes way back to 2015. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and, yeah, and you spoke about it on, on long form with Evan Ratliff a couple years ago too. And uh, it was, well, maybe before we talk about sort of the, you know, spoiler alert, kind of like the, the harsh breakup of it all, uh, <laughs> the, the callousness of, of that, but maybe you can just speak to, you already said like he, he told you you had an ear, which I imagine put a lot of, uh, some fuel in your tank. So like, how did he help you start to cultivate, you know, who you ultimately would become as a writer? Three things I would say. One of them is once he said I had an ear, then it was me paying attention to the acoustics of the sentences, but also not just paying attention to them, but letting them guide me in how I was constructing them. So it's one thing to like hear a thing. It's another thing to say that, oh, what I'm hearing is actually the logic for how I should compose this. So that was one thing. The other thing was being really meticulous in what what he saw. So he would literally sit down with us, or me at least, and go through something, a whole story, sentence by sentence. You know, like some people will read it and they'll give you some feedback, but like to go through a story sentence by sentence and say, why is this here? Why is it this way? Why didn't you choose this? Can you think of another way to say this? For me, that was really, really influential. And, and it also... It also made me grateful for someone who was willing to spend that kind of time with me. And then the second or the third thing, which you can never undervalue, is just encouragement. Like him calling me at night and leaving me voice messages, telling me I could be great. Like I still have some of those voice messages. And so I had never had anyone before that tell me that they thought I could be great at something. Not in my whole life. Like, good. Yeah, I think you'd be a good basketball player think you're a good student. Gordon Lish was the first person that said, I think you can be great. Now, he also said, you got to stick with me in order to get there. But whatever, that was beside the point. He told me I could be great. And that was, I don't think you can, you can discount that uh, type of, um, yeah, encouragement. Yeah. And uh, I watched uh, like this micro documentary uh, done by some sort of a grad student about Gordon Lish and, uh, you know, his relationship uh, or lack thereof in the end with Raymond Carver and how he edited with a butcher knife and just totally, you know, chain, uh, just reduced so much of Carter's prose down to the bare bones so much. So where it was like, was it really Carver or was it Lish as like a ventriloquist? And um, it was very interesting. And I wonder, like, for you, like, before you started working with him, like, how aware were you of, you know, just of his relationship to to writers uh, by the time you guys intersected? Oh, I was supremely aware of it. Um, I, I'm from Portland, and, and one of Lish's very first students is a guy named Tom Spambauer, who basically was teaching a Lish-like class for 30 years or 40 years in Portland. And 
his probably his most prominent student is is uh, Chuck Palahniuk. Uh, so they wrote he wrote Fight Club in that workshop. But then also Lydia Yuknovich is there, and Margaret Malone. There's a lot of basically any writer out of Portland at some point came through Tom Spanbar's class, and so I was familiar with some of the uh, philosophies of Lish before I ever met him. So I went to New York kind of knowing who he was, but he had retired and he probably had been retired for like a decade while I was in New York when he came back and I saw that the center for fiction was going to have a summer class with him. I started kind of revisiting, well, who were the writers that he worked with? And one particular thing that struck me was I couldn't find a writer of color that Lish had worked with really explicitly. And so I thought, man, like, what if I can take what he's given all of these other white writers, essentially, and they weren't all white, white, but um, what if I could take what he'd given them and I could filter it through this experience and this kind of, I had like a burgeoning sense of the kind of voice I wanted, but I didn't really have it. Um, And so for me, that was that was the goal going in. Like, I'm going to take everything that he gave these other people, but I'm going to filter it through something that has never been filtered through before. And that's this kind of experience. And that that burgeoning sense of voice, uh, you know, a lot of times that can come that can take just years and years and years to forge. And, uh, you know, for you, where did the, that assuredness come from that you, you felt like you really locked into something wholly unique and wholly you? Turning point, my f- First year in, at New York University in the MFA program, probably my first semester, I had a woman named Paul Marshall, a great writer, one of the Black Arts, I don't know if she's Black Arts Movement, she might be before Black Arts Movement, um, wrote a groundbreaking or several groundbreaking books. Uh, and she taught a, a short fiction class and she assigned John Edgar Wyman's short story, Wait. And the story starts, my mother's a weightlifter. You know what I mean? And then it goes on from there. And it is, uh, it sound, it's, it reads as if it were spoken. And it read as if one of my uncles were telling the story. And when mm-hmm. I read the story, and then I went and I looked up a white man and I saw that he was a MacArthur fellow. I actually didn't know what a MacArthur was at the time. But by reading about him, I found out what that was. And, he had won the Penn Faulkner twice, and he was teaching, I think, maybe at University of Pennsylvania at the time. Like he was the, he was like, okay, this is the dream for me as a as a graduate student in my second program. And um, I said, if he can write like this and get to that level of accomplishment, then there's a respect for this level of or this kind of voice. And obviously he wasn't the first person to do it and maybe he's not even the best, but he was the first person that I read that was doing it in that way and had that level of um, respect from the community. And so that was really what kind of opened up my senses to another way of thinking about how to, well, I, I was thinking about story. I think maybe the best way to say it is before that I was thinking about story and you know, structure and, and POV, but that, like, you can teach that, right? But then, like, once you really get into a voice, like, a voice is an expression of a human. It's a, a thumbprint. It's a personality. And so you have to have someone open up a door and say, it's okay to be you on the page. And Whiteman was the person that 
let me know it was okay to be me on the page. Yeah, that's so that's so key that you can by looking to other artists just through the the expression of their work they can give you permission. Yeah. And uh and at what point did you know, I, I don't want to belabor the point too much, but with your relationship with, with Lish, you know, at what point did you sense that things were starting to splinter or fracture? Uh, after I got a book deal. Would that have been for the residue years? Residue years, or? yeah. He was the yeah. one that helped me get the agent. I mean, he called me and said, take, this, take your manuscript over to this woman's house and leave it with her doorman and, and tell her Lish sent you. Uh, so that's how I got an agent. I've since changed, but she was my initial agent. And uh, after that, just he stopped returning phone calls. He was harder to get a hold of. He, he hung up on you. He, yeah. yeah, he started hanging up on me. So, I mean, it it wasn't like I had to guess whether or not the relationship had soured. <laughs> <laughs> it was very, very obvious to me. Um, but again, also, I had already read up on him and I knew I knew that this was a a familiar storyline in terms of him and the way that he works with writers. And also because I met him through a workshop and there were other people in that workshop that had relationships with him and other people in that workshop who he had changed the nature of their relationship too. So I wasn't wholly alone. So yeah, I mean, I just took it as, you know, this man has given me what he can give me and now I'm on my own. Now, did you, come to realize that did he treat everybody like this or only people who garnered some measure of success? Well, I think that's up for debate. Some people say that he does it in particular to people who kind of take off. Um, and I think, you know, one way, that's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is, well, I gave you what I can get, give you. And if you demonstrate that you got it, then it's time for me to move on or it's time for you to figure out another way to evolve um, so I don't want to malign him too much. I'm very, very thankful for him. I, I'm, I'm absolutely certain I would not be whatever this position is. It certainly wouldn't exist without Lish. Um, I was, I didn't meet him until I was, let's say four years out of my second MFA program. So it wasn't like I hadn't had professors before him and mentors before him. So I mean, I really have to be, I'm, I have nothing but gratitude for him and, you know, tough love, if that's what you're going to call it. But he gave me something that keeps giving, you know, I, I'll, I go back, I read, I reread his notes. I even asked the people who were in the workshop with me for their notes. So I have a like compiled a, a huge, you know, Google word doc of, of all of our notes together. Um, so that's how much I respect what he's done and, you know, everybody got their own personal issues, but I mean, he made a lot of people into something I don't think they could have been without him. Uh, and that's Carver included. How has your relationship to mentorship uh, changed as a result of the dynamic that you had with Gordon? Because I imagine people at this point are starting to knock on your door like, yeah. Mitchell, can you, can you give me some of the sauce? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think it's not to the... It's, I don't have any mentorship relationship that is to the degree that I had with Gordon or even to the degree that I have. Maybe it's, it's, it's more aligned with my relationship with John Edgar Whiteman now. But the thing about Gordon is he was actually a sage. So I don't feel qualified 
to mentor someone. And and also his mentorship was almost, it was like 95% just about the work. Like once you mm-hmm. got into the career part of it, he didn't want really anything to do with it, even though he did point me at a at an agent. But he was, he he really, he, did, he used to call it a, he used to say, you got to say F you to the witch doctor, you know? So you can't be trying to court this fame and, and celebrity as a writer, if that even exists. Uh, it's really about, putting in the work and, 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 and the art. And so in that, you need such a foundation of reading and thinking and experience that I don't feel that I'm, I'm, I'm in that place to give that to another person. Now, it's not to say that I won't tell you what I think about your work or, you know, I'll give you what I have, but I don't, I don't have the experience or the expertise to give in the way that Gordon did. Um, but I do have people who lean on me for mentorship and I try to give them whatever I can. A lot of that is career advice. And really a lot of it is just encouragement. It's like, no man, go tell these people you're not doing that. Or, or but what I, what I, I say my strength, let's say in the classroom, is I can see a sentence and I can hear it and I can take it apart and I can say, what if you move this over here? And what if you started it right here? And because I've been teaching this voice lecture so long, I also have a vocabulary for what I'm asking to be done to a sentence. So I can talk about a nafra, or I can talk about um, um, neodulism. And I, so there's all these, these, these things that I can do on a sentence level. And then, you know, I think if I, if I, I can see shapes, and I think this is one thing that, that, that happens in my nonfiction work is once I get up something down on the page, I'm able to say like, okay, what is the shape of this thing? And then, and, and I'm always, the one thing I always ask myself is, okay, like where's the flourish? So, mm. you know, so like what's different about, I, I never want to write just a straight on conventional anything really. And so you got to know the shapes. You got to know the conventions in order to be able to say, well, I don't, where's, where is this going to venture off from convention? And so that's another thing I think I can do in terms of maybe not mentorship, but at least in the classroom is I can say, okay, I see this thing and it looks like this, but what if we shifted this part over here or this part over here? Um, so I don't want to say I don't have value in that way, but, but to actually like Gordon is a genius. So to actually come in contact with someone who is a genius at what they do, like that's really hard to duplicate. I, I love the, the this class on voice. Uh, you know the the fact that you've been teaching it for for a while now, and how how has this class uh, evolved uh, over the years since you started it? Well, it's not it's not normally a class, I and mean, it's usually a lecture. And okay. it, I mean, so so say the lecture started at. Well, first of all, I talk, I talk about what voice is. So I spent a few pages in the lecture, like what is voice? Where does it come from? Why is it to me especially important that uh, people of color or marginalized groups uh, maintain their sense of voice and their connection to it? So we do that. And then I read a, a bunch of different quotes on voice. And so and then I have I call it a toolbox. I'm like, you know, you can pull from these. And so. The quotes used to be, say, a page. Now the quotes are four pages. And the toolbox mm-hmm. used to be, say, maybe 20 different things in there. Now they're 50. 
So it just keeps growing and growing and I'll keep reading and I'll say, oh, what is that thing that they're doing? And then I used to have examples. So the examples maybe were, say, eight to 10 examples in the beginning. And now it's probably 25 of them where I have like, you know, excerpts, paragraphs. And then we go through and we break them down and say, okay, right here, they're using this. And right here, they're using this. And the effect of it is this. And so, uh, you know, once they have that, that tool kit, cause you know, like you can, I can do a lot of things almost by accident on the page, but then it's harder to replicate if you don't, if you don't know that you did it or you don't have a name for it or you don't understand the principle behind it. And so for me, it's like giving people a, a language and a perception of things that they might already be doing, but also things that they haven't yet thought about. And most of it is really just poetics, right? It's like, you got to learn prose in the same way that a great poet knows form and knows all the little tricks inside of a, writing a good poem. Yeah, the I imagine that in your lecture that you run across a lot of students who might have had that that little spark or that voice uh, sort of scrubbed out from their identity. Mm-hmm. And you probably have to encourage them to be like, you know, like find out you need to sort of uh, regrow your voice from scratch after having it erased for a while. Is, is that something you run into? Uh, I Yeah, I think so. I think, but it's also like when you, when I say voice, so one of the things in the, in the lecture part of it is I'm like, voice is always craft. Like it's, it's always a composition. So some people can say like, Oh, I have a, a natural voice. Well, I don't actually believe that. Like, think mm-hmm. for me even it's not natural right it's not it's not the way that I talk uh and it's not necessarily just the things that I've read it's like picking and choosing what are these things like I keep a long list of on my phone of vo- regular vocabulary phrases vernacular and it's all separate right so so like one of the reasons I like going home is because I'm awash in a lot of times vernacular from my past and and I'll and I'll even willfully go and sit with people who I know are going to speak in this way just because oh I forgot about that or I forgot we used to say it that way or I so so I, I need that as much as I need to be reading Toni Morrison for me and so I think to 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 push students away from this idea that you find a voice. No, you make a voice. And I think that's maybe the main thing is like, no, you get all these tools and then you forge the voice that you want. And if it's working well, then it's also an expression of your personality, right? Like you're a vibrant person, you know, how does that play out on the page? You know, is that the sentence length? Is that the way that you're using analogy or metaphor or whatever it is? So so I do think ultimately it has to feel natural, but I think it's also like, man, you really got to know piece by piece what it is that is making this thing. Yeah. And I, I understand that there, when you moved to New York, uh, given that you felt that you had to essentially play a lot of catch up in terms <clears throat> of your reading and uh, you, you didn't have a TV, you know, you're like, you're going to immerse yourself in a lot of books. And that's how, that's how a voice is cultivated also yeah. and learning learning form and learning what you can do, what you can't, like, oh, not what you can't do, but you're just like, you learn 
uh, the the conventions of whatever it is you might be tackling. Yeah. Um, so so is that something too that you impress upon people that as as you were just saying a moment ago that you know a voice is made. It's like you know what you gotta really do, guys. You gotta you gotta be obsessed with reading and you gotta read with intention. Yeah, I mean, I think most of the people that I encounter are more readers than I am. Like if you mm-hmm. if you spent money to be in an MFA program. It's very likely you're a lifelong reader. I think I was an anomaly that yeah. I wasn't a lifelong reader. So you already have. Now, you might be reading in genre. Like, you might have just grown up reading a bunch of suspense thrillers. But I think they have that. I uh, I do think, though, it's different to learn to read as a writer. So, you know, if you read a, if you read romance, right, like you're reading for plot mostly. You might be reading for some whatever character development they have, but I think that's, and also, I don't know how many romance writers are really, really pushing on sentences. So I feel like you gotta, it's not just reading and reading and reading, it's like reading the right stuff. Also, when you said you gotta know what you can do, I think you also do need to know that. Like, I remember reading Jesus' Son, which, you know, is a cult, cult classic in MFA programs. And I could not in a zillion years come up with the metaphors and the leaps of imagination that Dennis Johnson came up with. Now, I don't know if that was drugs or post drugs or what, like I just couldn't do it. And so I also had to recognize, I can't do that. You know, like I'll read someone else and I'm like, they just have a gift that I can't manifest. But also I think you have to work at it long enough to know what your strengths are. And I forgot, Lish used to say that a lot. He was like, people always talk about work on your weaknesses. He said, you also got to keep track of your strengths. Um, And so I think part of what I want to do in the classroom too is help people figure out what their strengths are and how do they amplify them. Yeah, that's a great, great point too, is like, yeah, you do have strengths and weaknesses and you don't want to necessarily level up all your weaknesses at the uh, absence of focusing on your strengths. So. So for you, what would you identify as, you know, strength and weaknesses and how you uh, how you how you balance leveling up the weaknesses without abandoning what makes uh, makes you strong? Yeah, I mean, the strength is in the voice. Um, The strength, I, I think, also is in the clarity of thinking. Like if you give me the information, I think I have a POV inside of it usually. And and I can come to some I don't want to say conclusions because. I don't think you should necessarily be coming to conclusions, but I can come to some reasonable judgments um, or even some, some questions about any subject. Well, unless we're talking like physics, then I'm out of my depth. Um, but so the, the weakness is just in the reading for me. It's like, what do you read? How much do I go back and, 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 and catch the classics that I miss versus how much am I reading contemporary work? How much do I need to read into a subject to write about it? So, so I spent a lot of my time, you know, when I was writing on Kendrick, you, you, you would think like, oh, I've been listening to Kendrick, you know, since he came out and so much. I mean, documentaries and videos and every single profile and, you know, breakdowns of the albums and the history of hip hop. Like there's so much reading that goes into that same thing with Chris Rock. Like, I mean, I studied all the famous black comedians and you know, what, what, what was the, the genesis of black comedy in America? Like, so things that I wouldn't normally be
be reading. I have to read because now I've taken on this subject. So for me, but what I don't have is like every Shakespeare play committed to memory. What I don't have is, you know, all the Greek mythology right at hand so I can draw from all the metaphors. So, so for me, it's like finding a space where I can do the work that I need to do in that kind of research. And then also cultivating a space to like, I don't want to say catch up, but, but to steep myself in classic literature. Um, because I feel like if, 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 if I have the same access or facility with the work, I can make whatever I want to make. And, and given the, la- the last few years, you know, your, your profile as a writer has, uh, has really taken flight. And I want, I'm always interested in how people process going from relative anonymity to then suddenly, you know, being someone where people like, you know, long form or me are knocking on your doors. Let's, let's talk, you know, cause it, you know, when, when, when you're starting to draw that kind of attention. Um, so how, what's it been like for you to like, kind of, you know, process that? You know, um, it actually hasn't felt that much different because mm-hmm. uh, when Residue came out, you know, it, well, you, maybe you don't know, but uh, it was nominated for a lot of, I mean, I don't know what a lot is, maybe six or seven first book prizes. It was a finalist for probably five of them or something. And so from from the time that Residue came out, it's pretty much been steady. Now, when the when the Pulitzer hit, yeah, I mean, it, it amped up a little bit. I might get a few more requests to for speaking engagements, but I'm pretty steady in that sense. I think what changed it for me was um, becoming uh, a columnist at Esquire. And then signing on with the New York Times Magazine put another expectation of writing, which is a little, I mean, it's not as, it's not as um, frequent as the Esquire, but it's still, it's always hovering. So now I think for me, there's always at least four deadlines, right? I'm on a novel deadline with FSG. I'm on a deadline with the New York Times Magazine. I'm on a deadline or two with Esquire. And then I'm I'm working on a, uh, I just, I'm finishing up a, a, a coffee book, which seemed like it wasn't going to be that much work in the beginning, but it's it's a, it turned out to be much more work and I put the same amount of effort in the sentences and revised it seven, eight times. And so here we are with that. So now it's like navigating these different deadlines and, and, and also wanting to not even maintain excellence, like wanting to exceed myself at every turn, which is hard to do when you got to like turn here for five hours and work on this thing and then turn here for five hours and work on this thing. But in terms of attention, I don't really even feel it. You know, like, I mean, I, I think fame as a writer actually doesn't exist. Mm. You know, like, I'm hanging out with Colson Whitehead. Nobody's running up on Colson Whitehead for autographs. <laughs> you know, and like, to me, it doesn't get any bigger than that. In, in the space that I live in, who is a bigger writer than Colson Whitehead and ta Coates and Jasmine Ward? Like, that's it. And so I've seen that, that, so imagine the equivalent of the equivalent of Colson Whitehead is Kendrick Lamar. Right? Yeah. Maybe not even that. Like he might be more nah, I would say they're equivalent. But imagine what Ken like the, the response to Kendrick in the world as opposed to the response to Colson. Like Colson can walk right down my street right now where nobody knows who he was. Let Kendrick walk down here. Yeah. So so I think 
when you say, you know, your profile has risen, it probably has, but it doesn't feel like anything. It just feels like, okay, you got these deadlines. How are you going to make them? Oh, man, I, I got to say, if I saw the four of you, like, you know, you, Jasmine Colson, Tanahisi, and yourself down the street, I would I would sprint <laughs> up to you and be like, please, please sign my journal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would see I would run up on them, too. But I just I mean, I think it's it's also a gift, you know, like the gift that you can move through the world and make these things that are going to live forever, maybe, hopefully, or at least, you know, decades um, and not really have to bother with fame. Going back to, to Chris Rock, I just have a couple more things for you, Mitchell, to be mindful of your time. Uh, yeah. There there was also a, a quote in there uh, where he, he's saying, like, I'm just working. One day we're, we're going to look and it's going to be like, oh, I did a lot of work. That's it. Mm-hmm. I did a lot of work. I'm just working, man. And yeah. that kind of gets back to the start of our conversation where, like, you're looking at the sort of the timeline of your awards and everything and it's just like, yeah, that that's the work, but I'm still going. And, you know, a lot of times when we do these kind of magazine stories, it's a, it's, it's a lot of selection and what you put in there. And I imagine when you selected that quote to go in there, it's just like, yeah, I, I, I really feel that at its core. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, you, you get, I didn't necessarily know, like sometimes you go into one of those pieces and you have a thesis already, uh, and, and in this case, I didn't. And so I had done the work and talked to all these people. And I was like, what is this about? I was talking to my editor. And he was like, man, this guy doesn't want to be forgotten. And I was like, yeah. And I think the question that I had asked to get that answer was like, where do you see yourself in the pantheon of Black comedians? Because earlier I asked him who was the greatest. And he said almost without hesitation that it was um, Dave Chappelle. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting that he can that quickly. And I didn't know if he was being deferential or he was, you know, what he was doing. But uh, at the end, it made sense, right? Like, I'm just going to do the work. He also said something in there. He was like, you can't, you can't be in the Hall of Fame and playing. And I was like, well, what, that again, you know, like, yeah, put me in the Hall of Fame after I'm done playing, which is strange because right before I got on this um, call with you, I saw his specialist coming out tomorrow. Is a Netflix special. I wonder for you if, like, you you talk about uh, him not wanting to be forgotten, and I, you know, I've heard you talk about you know writing and legacy, and mm-hmm. you know, not caring about book sales, trying to be like, you know, we don't necessarily uh, attribute book sales to Baldwin, but we definitely yeah. attribute his thinking and yeah. uh, and the impact he has. And I wonder for you if an animating force for your writing going forward is just this this uh, kind of a need to leave a legacy, but also not be forgotten. Absolutely. It, it, it might be the biggest driving force now. It's like, and then, but it's also like, well, how do you do that? I think you just got to keep making things that speak to the moment that are artful. So in the here and now, I think, you know, uh, awards are great. I'm not turning, well, I don't know, maybe there is one I would turn down, but I generally wouldn't turn them down. They offer me another Pulitzer. Yes, I'll take it. But but also for me, it's can you go into a room full of writers that you respect and they respect you? Because, you know, like you could be the guy who caught a couple of good juries and they gave you a couple things and you you are laureled in a sense but you don't have the respect of the people that really know 
what it is to do this thing and have made this. So if I can go into a room with Jasmine and ta and Colson and Terrence Hayes and Avan Jordan and, uh, you know, uh, yeah, Weidman too. Now Bali and yeah, and Weidman and all these writers who I respect. And then they say, Oh, he deserves to be here. Like I've read his work and I appreciate it. For me, that's the ultimate, ultimate measure of where you are in the here and now. And then in your intellectual capabilities and, and hope that they resonate with people. Cause you can also make some stuff that, you know, was the best that you could do. And, and, and it, it just, for whatever reason, it, people missed it or, you know, it didn't, there was something else happening in the, especially in nonfiction, there was something else happening in the news that week and it just didn't resonate the way that it was supposed to. So I know there's some of that too, but I hope at the end of all of this, when you put it all together, that it's going to look like this guy really cared about language. He really cared about his people. He really cared about um, pushing his art forward. Well, that's amazing. Uh, well, Mitchell, there's always one question I like to end these conversations with, and it's uh, always to ask uh, the guest uh, a recommendation of some sort for the listeners, and that can be, you know, anything from a cool podcast you're listening to to a movie to a brand of coffee. It's a, uh, it's a, uh, so it's always uh, it's up to you what what's exciting you these days, and I'd, I'd pose that to you. What might you recommend for people out there? Damn, what am I excited about recommending? Uh, something. That- people wouldn't know about. Uh, I would say I'm really looking forward to um, Jasmine Ward's next novel. Yeah. Um, I, I have it downstairs and I, now I can't remember the damn title of it, but it, I think it's coming out maybe August. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, to me, she's a measure of 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 uh, a person who cares about language, who's really skilled and also obviously very laurel laurel, um, and also a good person too. Like you, I love hanging out with her. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I would say look out for Jasmine's next novel. Golly, she's just operating on a on a different level from another planet, man. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Right? Oh yeah. my gosh. All she does is win national book awards too. Like, yeah, on. right, right, right. Yeah. She'd be up probably for another one this, this year or next. Yeah. This year too. Absolutely. Well, Mitchell, this was so great to get to talk to you about, about the, the arc of your writing today and uh, just how you go about it, which is just really inspiring and super insightful. So just thanks so much for the time and uh, yeah. And thanks so much for the, all the work you do. Okay. I appreciate you, man. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening, CNFers, and thanks to Mitchell for coming on the show. Brilliant, right? The Jesmond Ward book he referenced that's coming out in October 2023 is Let Us Descend. So you might as well just chalk that up to another national book award, because that's all Jesmond Ward does. That's all she does, is win national book awards. Deservedly so. If you like this conversation as much as I did, and I did... Consider sharing it and tagging me in the show at CNFPod on Twitter or at Creative Nonfiction Podcast on Instagram. The show will only grow because of you. As you know, I'm something of a nobody, so it's the validation of your endorsements that makes the needle move. There's so much content out there, so many old shows and always new shows, and this one will only survive the pod fade if you celebrate it, so long as it's worth celebrating. 
And also there's patreon.com slash cnfpod. And uh, you could consider heading over there and put a few bucks in the tip jar every month. Show is free, but it sure as hell ain't cheap. I don't have much to say by way of a parting shot this week. I've been a bit unmoored of late. I feel very disconnected from the show here. Kind of like it's on autopilot, like I'm going through the motions. And I think that's true to some extent because I'm preoccupied in other ways. You know, obviously I've been in the throes of book research and trying to track down people to talk to, which as of right now is not bearing much fruit, only panic. Um, Next Friday, Metallica's new album, 72 Seasons, drops. I have pre-ordered my vinyl, uh, but I'll listen to the record on a loop with my noise-canceling headphones on Spotify all day. I'm excited. A new uh, a Metallica album is an event, and so I'm, I'm pretty stoked. So anyway, I might have something more to say next week about uh, uh, the morass that is a life trying to write words and books and sentences and paragraphs and try to make sense of it and talk to people who also are trying to make sense of writing words and books and paragraphs and sentences. So do your thing, all right? Stay wild, see you in efforts. If you can do, interview. See ya. See ya.